Listener Production. I'm automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. For this episode, I'm in Sydney at Listener HQ, right beside some studios that I worked in for many years in radio. My guest is on the other side of the pond in America, Charlotte, North Carolina, to be exact. It's a bit of a motorsport hub there and also the hood now for Will Power, who created history in 2018 by becoming the first Aussie to win the greatest spectacle in racing, the Indianapolis 500, a race that was first staged over 100 years ago. Quite a feat. Through incredible determination and perseverance, Power has rightly claimed a spot among some legendary IndyCar stars. After going nail-bitingly close to winning the title on several occasions, he broke through in 2014. Power is the man when it comes to stats around road and street course races, but the numbers underscore deeper, broader talent than that approaching 40 career wins, 70 podiums and more than 50 pole positions. You get a sense in our chat that in his early days, Will really had to prove himself and often to no one but himself. Now he drives for automotive and racing icon Roger Penske and is cemented in the record books, which has enabled him to be more comfortable in his world. He's showing more humour on socials, loves being a dad and in fact enjoys playing drums when he's away from the cockpit. This is one of the most gripping chats that I've had since we launched Rusty's Garage. I'm grateful that Will feels comfortable enough to open up on various topics, including the day that likeable racer Dan Weldon died. Plus, the big decision to turn left, from following the path to F1 to trying his luck in the US. Now, that said, you will never take that proud Aussie, that proud Queenslander from Toowoomba out of him. But I wondered... If, when it's all said and done, he'd ever base himself back down under. No, I, I think America will be home for me for the rest of my life because um, I married an American girl. I have a, a son now. And, uh, um, yeah, I live in North Carolina, live on Lake Norman. It's uh, where a lot of the, pretty much all the NASCAR teams are based here. Um, yeah, my team, Team Penske, is based here. They have the IndyCar team uh, and the NASCAR team and the sports, well, what was the sports car team under the same roof. So, um, yeah, I got a very, very used to living away from home. Like it really, Australia doesn't, if I go home to Australia, uh, I actually get homesick kind of, I feel like I'm coming back home to here because I've been away for so long. I mean, I left in 2000 and... uh, uh, would I leave 2000, end of 2002, you know, went to England for three years um, before I came to America and, and I've been here since. So, um, yeah, have, haven't been, haven't lived in Australia for, uh, yeah, we're getting close to 20 years, like 18 years. Crazy. Do you pinch yourself, mate? Because you've just talked about living in what is an American hub of racing. I, I've been there. It's an amazing part of the world. You're a long way from Toowoomba and much has changed in your life. Pretty cool to think that you've made it. When you look back, it does it does blow your mind when you think about some of the thoughts that you had 
when I was just working as a canvas goods manufacturer and I'd be sitting out and I actually used to smoke having a cigarette and thinking about what, where I would be when I was age 30 or age 35. And, um, and I, I never, ever accepted that I would be just working. I always, uh, always had in my mind that I would, I would be doing something, something else I really enjoy, whether, you know, uh, you know, I used to skateboard when I was younger, uh, whether I was going to be a pro skater or racing was always the thing that I said when I was a kid that I wanted to be as a race car driver. But yeah, I mean, looking back at, uh, when you look at everything you've done and, you know, how impossible you really felt it was, uh, yeah, it, it, it is, it's surreal. It's really is like a, a dream come true. Honestly, that's, that's how you feel it. it it's, um, it's, it, it's something you would have dreamed of as a kid to be getting paid to drive Indy cars, um, you know, living in America and winning, you know, winning races. Mm. It is surreal, but you know, the journey, you know, the work that's gone into it. So it's not surprising in that way. Um, you know, the thing that becomes to me really evident is that hard work and persistence and study and homework really pay off. It's, you, you know, no one's different to anyone else in that respect. They can all, they all have something that they can excel at if you just put the work in and are determined. And you have done that, mate. I, I often use the word tenacious and you are the epitome of that in, in my mind. I'm glad that you brought up your, your youth. Um, you, you grew up in Toowoomba, Darling Downs region of Queensland, west of Brisbane. There was a great photo you've po- posted in recent days on Instagram of you as a little tacker. Did the Power Boys run amok and make life hard for your mum when you were little? And, and was it clearly dad that got you hooked on racing? Uh, it was clearly dad that got us all hooked on racing, no question. <laughs> and he had, a, he had a Formula 2 car um, at the first house we lived in and he'd be working on that thing till, you know, 11 at night and then they'd probably get whatever they were doing together, whether it was the engine or whatever change or, you know, gear ratios and they'd start it up and my mother would come down screaming at him to turn it off. The kids are asleep. <laughs> We'd all be excited because <laughs> he, uh, he started the car up. But so, What was that thing powered by? What was it powered by? It was a Judd Golf uh, yeah, yeah. two-liter. Mega. Yeah, it would have had... Um, Twin Webers on as carbies, so yeah, it was it was a real racy sounding engine. Like it would vibrate the floor. I remember that distinctly because <laughs> you know the garage is right under our bedroom, um, and it was just so exciting for us, like to have a race car in the garage and Dad working on it, and um, you know being kind of a part of it, being a bit of a pest, honestly. Like, <laughs> if anything. <laughs> Well, our dad would belt us if anything went missing because he'd know that the bloody, as he calls, the bloody kids got it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we were, I mean, I was, me and my older, the next oldest to me, Nick, was so, we were so into racing. We, what we called it, playing racing. So that's what, that's what we did as kids. And uh, yes, we ran amok for sure, like all four of us with, uh, you know, uh, my poor old mother having to deal with it while dad was off racing or, you know, he had, had he's running a business at the same time too. So yeah, she, she deserves a medal, man. She really does. Yeah. We all really try to look after her well <laughs> these days because we understand now that we have kids, um, yeah. just one kid, how much work that is 
yeah, you realize that real quick and you think immediately of your mother who had four kids all two years apart. This is just nuts. Amazing. First car for you. I want to latch on to the Datsun 1200 and the early part of your racing. What color, what power plant, what sort of events, and were you hands-on with it? Uh, yes, I was I, I, I was hands-on with it. I remember doing a, a cha- having to change a gearbox um, and we're prepping for the race. That's how my uh, dad made us do everything. You know, when we were racing go-karts as a kid, we, we did all did everything basically because he was racing too like my dad's crazy he would have literally three kids racing and we're all look after a custom then he'd be racing like two classes in in go-karting um and that's the way it was so we, we did all we learned how to do all that stuff um so it just was normal for us um and yes the dirt track car was a datsun 1200 um which the engine it, it had to be stock you couldn't change anything on it so it was a 1200 um obviously you cut the muffler off and the pipe and you know do as much as you can to it and um yeah we it was kind of a cool series it was uh called this it was a dirt track series is short circuit racing is what they called it it was in, in queensland um you know there's probably about five or six tracks it was mill Marin, warwick uh, there's one in Toowoomba called Echo Valley. Lee Diffie used to actually commentate there. Yeah. For the motor, I think he's uh, for the motocross, the motocross tracking. And then there's the one at Ipswich, which you probably saw when you'd go to Queensland Raceway. You you, you probably saw that uh, uh, that on the left. As you there, come into you, the you, complex, you, yeah, there. you've gone past mm. the go kart track or the drag strip and the go kart track. The next thing was that dirt track, and that was what uh, what I raced in. So it was dirt track road courses. Um, and it was great, really a lot of fun. Um, you know, karting was was really good for your, you know, being very neat and tidy and um, lines and understanding racing, basically um, all the things you learn in karting, you know, uh, uh, you know, more about where the grip is and um, what curves you may use. But the dirt track was car control, um, you know, and then they the water truck had come out during a hundred lap race and it'd go from reasonably grippy with, with, you know, the, it actually gets so packed down, it actually lay rubber, which I think any of the guys who race sprint cars would know all about that. But, yeah. um, and then the water truck would come and go to literally ice. So <laughs> many different conditions and, um, any different sorts of cars you'd race against too. Like people rocked up with all sorts of stuff. It was, it was pretty good, real grassroots racing. Uh, and ironically, mate, or, although it's a world apart from what you now do, I would imagine some of the learnings from that um, were, were pivotal in kind of setting you up, weren't they? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's all it's all a learning curve. Like you'll take take a little bit from everything that you've done over your career. You you, mm. you know, and you'll you'll keep honing it and honing it. And yeah, I mean that would certainly set you up well for the uh, driving in the wet and just in general car control of something big, you know, go-karts so nimble and tight. And, you know, suddenly when you go into cars, you've got much more weight to deal with. So, um, you know, I think you understand inertia much better when you've raced dirt track and, um, you know, a heavy sedan because uh, it matters where in the go-kart, the inertia is not a big deal. It's, it's, uh, 
know, the braking zones aren't very long and it's it's a very nimble little thing, but it's it's unbelievably competitive and great racing go kart. Mm. I still I still I still race go karts uh, um, and enjoy it immensely. I, I love it. It's because it's such pure racing. It's so um, no aerodynamics. And it's just uh, uh, and no strategy. It's simply great race craft and as hard as you can go um, to try win the race. We'll talk more about WPK or willpower carts a little bit later on because I know that's something you you've uh, ventured into in relatively recent time and that's exciting. But to Expand on Formula Ford, which you brought up um, a moment ago. You were kind of underdog back then, weren't you? It was tough. A small band of people, your dad, and you were talking about working hands-on. And the, the one of the early cars that you had was significantly older than some of the, the others in the field that you were up against, wasn't it? Um, the year that I competed against Will Davis and I drove that Stealth, which was, uh, you know, the conversion from a 94 or 95 Van Diemen that Brett Lupton did in um, – Yep. over in Western Australia. And, uh, and I actually didn't think it was a worse car than what Will Will Davison is who I battled for that year um, until I drove a 2002 or three Van Diemen. And then I realized like, wow, these things were a really nice car. So yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it wasn't the latest equipment. I don't think I was at a, a massive disadvantage or anything. I think it was a great competitive season mm. and, um, you know, we'll end up winning that championship. But uh, I raced former forward on and off, you know, for, for a while before I did a full season in um, uh, 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 in the National Series before I was, let's say, really serious about it um, because, because it just it was never really, it, it, you know, we didn't, have a path set out. Uh, you know, my dad mm. and I, I would say when I say we, it was my father and I really who, he, you know, he helped me from the very beginning, got to a point where I, he wasn't doing anything. I would just prep the car, I'd tow the car, I'd do everything myself. He didn't even come to the races, uh, you know, at one point. But, um, um, yeah, I, I never, it wasn't, I, that was something I really noticed with Will Davison when I finally, um, you know, had, taken it very seriously, which was in 2001, I fought Will Davison. But the first year I took it real serious was in 2000, I raced for Mike Borland in his team in the Spectrum. And that was my first taste of being very professional and thinking that I want to make this something, you know, I want to make it to V8 Supercar. Or make a career. Formula One, make mm. it a career. Um, and then, uh, uh, yeah, so then the next year, I thought Will Davison and his family is, had done it so well. Like it looked like he had a whole career just planned out and they, it seemed as though they had the funding and everything. And uh, I felt like we were a bit of a mess <laughs> in that respect. We just simply didn't have it laid out in that way. It was just like, let's just try and make the next race. Let's just try and make this mm-hmm. season, let alone thinking about it you know, trying to go to Europe and race it, you know, British Formula 3 or Formula Renault or any of that. That wasn't even, that didn't even seem like a possibility to me uh, at that stage. So what changed in, in that, you know, in that thinking for you then? Really what changed was in 2000, I started taking seriously and I, I was so, so determined at that point to, to try and make it as much as I said we're messy in like 2000. One, I really did finish that season with no ride or anywhere to go, but I met Graham Watson. Graham Watson called me, gave me a test, and 
because we didn't really have the money to do Formula Holden or anything like that, which was, you know, really a dream for me to try to do that. Um, and Graham gave me a test and he did it for free uh, at Wakefield Park. It was, oh, man, the car was so awesome to drive. Yeah. Just such a blast. Like from after doing Formula Ford, getting to drive a Formula Holden with a, you know, 300, over 300 horsepower and downforce and unbelievable brakes. It just was after that test, I was so pumped. And um, so then we worked a pretty good deal out with Graham. Like, I mean, he gave me a great deal as far as um, I had some inheritance from my uncle. It was like $70,000 and I spent that on that season. Wow. And that got me through that season. And at the same time, I met uh, uh, still a great friend of mine, uh, Bevan Carrick, who, you know, was just a motorsport enthusiast, you know, older guy had a, um, you know, he was probably in his 50s at that point, had a business called Cool Temp, and he had a Formula 3 car, and he wanted me to come test it at Queensland Raceway, and I tested it and gave him good feedback and, you know, told him you need to open the diff up and this and that, and we got it, and he's like, he was really impressed. He said, oh, well, we can go down and do a, a race, I think it might have been the opening race at Oran Park. This is the same year I got the ride with um, Graham Watson. So I had Formula Holden and Formula 3 at the same time. So I was getting, I was getting a lot of miles uh, in open wheel cars with wings. And we went down to Oran Park after doing, I think, the first couple of races in Formula Holden. And in an old uh, Formula 3 car, it was a 97 model. Everyone had uh, 2001 models at that point. All the guys at the front, we we destroyed the field. Run, you know, pole both races, you know, you know, on pole, won both races, led every lap, um, and, and then did the same the next race, which was oh, what was it? Might have been Wakefield Park or something. So, and then I started meeting some people that started to take interest that had the money to send me overseas and do a test and start, you know, cracking that door open. Um, so it was just really, you know, I wouldn't say circumstance, but uh, the fact that I had done so well in Formula 4, Graham Watson called me yep. and Bevan Carrick had watched me and wanted me to test his car and did well in that. So then he gave me some races. And then I met some people that could help me to get overseas. And, uh, you know, that's how that started. And during that year, I actually... I went with Graham Watson with me and we went over and did a test to buy a car for one of the guys that um, was going to put money in, um, test a Formula 3 and if it was good and I said it was good, he was going to buy it and bring it back to Australia and um, and that, that, that test was with uh, actually Diamond Racing. So that was the first taste of driving anything overseas was uh, at the end of 2002. And were you hooked at this point, mate, like you, you, you know, the dream of potentially Formula One or something like that um, in Europe must have seemed a bit more of a of a reality now. And I, I love the memories you've just shared mm. of both Formula Three and Formula Holden because they have revitalised, if you like, down here now the Australian Drivers Championship or the Gold Star, which you, you know, I mean, your name is in the record books alongside some of those yeah. those people. You know, having having done that, mate, is was a very cool tick before you made that next step, wasn't it? It was to win the gold star because my father competed for the gold star. So, mm. you know, when you're a kid, that is 
seemed as a really big deal to me, which t it was. And um, uh, it was a, it was the first championship I'd ever, ever won. And it felt, uh, yeah, it was fantastic. And I had my dad there the day I won it in Winton. And it was just a, a, a really cool, a great season, um, you know, and it's kind of takes me back to my childhood when my brother and I would play racing and talk about racing guys like Graham Watson because that's, I mean, my dad raced Graham Watson, Arthur Abrahams, Peter Glover, Richard Davison, um, all these guys that are still kind of, because, you know, as you know, when you have a hero as a kid, they remain your hero, this big figure in your mind. So it was really cool to race for Graham Watson and, um, and win a championship there at the Gold Star uh, and meet a lot of the people I used to hear my dad talk about in the paddock when I was a kid. A lot of the guys that dad would come home and he's talking about this guy and that guy and, um, and you'd see him around the paddock. Uh, uh, so that was, yeah. Pretty, pretty cool. Pretty cool to win the gold star. The gold star was the third oldest continuously awarded title in Australian motorsport, with only the Australian Grand Prix and the Australian Hill Climb Championship having a longer uninterrupted history. You talked before about about going overseas and kind of opening the door for the first time how big a step was that how hard was that and were there moments of, of massive doubt where you thought this is just not gonna pan out there was always doubt i just there just was because of the situation but yeah it was a massive step to just you know um we did the first test there i gotta recall how that all worked out we did the first test which i did very well in um, it's just kind of like a club open day to test on the track, but they had lap times from, uh, you know, previously testing other Formula 3 drives and guys there, so they knew what was fast, and I was, you know, very quick there. Like, I think I was, like, mm -hmm. under the lap record for that short track at Silverstone. I was at Silverstone. Um, so, you know, that got, you know, a couple of guys back in Australia with, with good money excited, um, and and so... And my dad, my dad actually sold, he had, he had a business, Bob Powell Canvas, and behind that business he had a couple of houses and he sold those two houses to get four, $400,000 to fund me. And I felt, you know, a massive kind of pressure and Debt. guilt mm -hmm. kind mm -hmm. of that, oh, man, that's mm -hmm. like, you know, dad's savings like he's you know putting a lot on the line for me to succeed mm. and it's kind of a, a lot you know it is a long shot it's tough um but anyway we, we i went over there and um we did a deal with rolt everyone had dolaris we mm -hmm. went with a group that built um a, a rolt they called it a rolt but it wasn't ron Torinac. it was you know i think someone had bought, bought the rights and then designed a car and um and we kind of went that way because Nelson Piquet Jr. at the time had been running it in Brazil and done reasonably well. And they were saying, well, he's probably going to run it, which he didn't. He came over and ran a Dallara. So we were the only Rolt in the field. And first race qualified like 28th out of 30, I reckon, or something like that. <sighs> Just nowhere. Hmm. Um, and that went on for, God, I want to say we did six races like that. And then literally 
I think we ran out of money or it's like we're not wasting any more of our money on this. It's, it's a waste of time. Mm-hmm. So I did a really good deal with Fortech. I went around to a few different teams. At that time, you could race Formula 3, which was the open class, and they actually had in the field B class, which was year-old cars. Mm-hmm. So I even talked to a couple of those teams, but that would have been just a total waste of time. Um, so I went to Fortech and um, did a good deal with those guys and uh, uh, and got like the rest of the season testing uh, like for a, like I think I remember it was like a hundred thousand pounds, which was a really good deal at the time. Yeah, um, and so that. Uh, that that like my first race, I think I qualified fifth straight away, like right on the pace, as quick as my teammate, um, and and you know then was competitive. I think I finished on the podium and um, went very well for the second half of the last group of those races, and got a lot of testing and time and um, uh, and then the next year I ended up with Alan Docking, which was a single car team, and honestly that was. Mm-hmm. Probably not the best situation. It was, you know, you're racing against like Carlin, who had four cars, and Fortec had two cars, and um, yeah, some big teams. And we simply, well, we did well. Like I qualified on the front row mm. often and was running at the front often, but it was um, uh, not ideal having not having a teammate in that situation. Uh, and, and yeah, it was really at the end of that season, which was 2000 and. Uh, was that 2004? I was done. I was like, yep. Um, the only kind of good thing about that season was I was going to get a test at the end of the year, no matter what, with uh, Minardi in F1, mm-hmm. myself and Will Davison. So um, I, uh, the next part of that story is so I finished that season with nothing and really certainly had no money to do anything. I actually went into debt with Alan Docking to get that season, wow. signed a contract with him that I would pay him back. Um, and I had that F1 test coming up and I thought, well, it'd be pretty smart to spend, uh, I think I had to get $4,000 to do a test in F3000 at the track I'd be testing the Minardi. And, um, that was with a team called Draco, yes. Draco or Draco, which was a really good team um, in F3000. And they were testing four drivers that day. They didn't really know who I was and thought I was a bit of a disaster because I was trying to call them to get directions <laughs> um, when I organized that test. And I'm like, look at the map. He goes, can you see this? And I was like, can you see this name? I said, I cannot see it. I'm like searching on this map that I got from the rent car place. And I'm like... And like the guy must have thought I was an idiot. And then after he hung up, I turned it over. It's like, oh, it's a two-sided map. <laughs> so the map was on the back. And and I was like, and he even said it at some point. He goes, you're a complete, you know, after the test, you're like a real disaster. But anyway, I did the, did the test and they were testing four drivers, including me that day. Um, I don't know what number I was when I went in, but I mean, I was a second quicker than all the guys and, that, and they were the guys. Okay. I was just there to learn the track. That's mm-hmm. all I wanted to do. I wasn't really thinking of anything else, but learn the track for the Formula One test. And they're like amazed at the speed. They, were, they really were because the three dr- other drivers I was testing were for that seat, for um, which 
F three thousand was becoming World Series by oh, Renault, Renault. Hmm. Uh, the next next year. Um, so it was the uh, testing guys for that seat, and they were like really like blown away um, at at the speed to you know just destroy these other guys, and kind of just left that test and didn't like. You know, I think they were, they would have been asking me that test. How much money do you have? And I was like, legitimately, I have none. Hmm. But I'm sure they've been used to that over the years of you know being a team trying to find money to go racing. Of drivers saying they have no money, but they do. You know, have some money that's trying to get a good deal. But I legitimately had Another. zero money. Wow. Um, and and so I was running out of my visa. I did the Minardi test and they actually even got feedback from that, that Will Davison and myself were really quick. We were, we were as quick as a guy in the Minardi uh, that had been testing for the last day. Hmm. Like we got in there and got to their pace. I kind of like, who are these two Australian guys <laughs> <laughs> able to like, you know, and I, and I tell you, you know, some of that speed would have been from Will and I desperately trying to be faster than each other, sure. like desperately. Yeah. Um, uh, but we actually ended up like, oh, I, I have to say, like, we did exactly the same time, basically. It was like hundreds apart or something. But um, so they, because they were Italian and, and they had a shop very close to Minardi, they obviously all know each other and they heard about that too. So uh, I was back in England and, I'm, and I think they called me and said, well, there's another test at Paul Ricard. It's with the new, uh, you know, Renault car. Yeah. And I said, I, I can't do it. I have no money I, I'm, and, I, and I'm running out of my visa and I have to go back to Australia. So, you know, if you guys want me to test, you know, you're going to have to tell me now um, because I'm going back to Australia and I, I can't, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to afford to fly back. So they probably didn't believe me or whatever. I went back to Australia, resigned myself to just going back to work. Um, and a couple of weeks later, so that test must have been in, I can't remember, it was like a month or something. So it was in between the time I left from England and I went back to Australia. I remember it had been a couple of weeks and they called me on my home number um, and said, you know, we really want you to come back and test. I'm like, look, I have no money. I'm telling you, I don't. And I think they believed me at that point because I really did just leave England and go. Mm. Um, so they said, all right. If uh, you get over here, you can sign a contract with us and um, it means that you can't go to any other team um, and we'll pay for your test. Mega. So we went there and they were testing other drivers that day too. And um, yeah. I had, I think I was P2, Robert Kubica was P1. I think Alvaro Parente was there, like a lot of good drivers. Um, so I was right up there and with minimal time, like, um, you know, these other teams had drivers that uh, – had already signed, so they got the full two days of testing. I just got a portion of one day, mm. um, and uh, and once again they were very impressed. Um, and then it was just, oh man, it was a sh- it was very tough because what I needed to find for that was two hundred and fifty. Like to do a season in that series was six hundred thousand euros, and they said we'll do a deal for you for two hundred or was it two hundred two hundred fifty. And then I, you know, I was dealing with some guys and said, you know, that were promising the money that didn't have it. So it was becoming, there was a bit of tension between myself and Draco, mm. the team, because they wanted to, you know, get a deal done 
and and be sure that I was good for the money. And I, I it just kept dragging on and on and on. And we somewhat had a bit of a falling out, but I still had a contract with those guys because I tested them. And it would be 20,000 pounds, if I remember correctly, to get out of that contract. In the meantime, my girlfriend back in England, Kerry uh, Fenwick, who was working for Mark, Mark Webber, Webber. Hmm. Um, was kind of upset that I wouldn't be coming back. And um, I think Ann Neal and Mark said, why don't you call Carlin? They've got a, you know, they're starting a, a former World Series by Renault team. Um, just call them. And she's like, we've got no money. And then they kind of said, well, we'll, we'll back you, um, you know, and, and for the first half of the season. And then, you know, you do well enough, we can just find the money. So that's how that all started. I love it. So I didn't talk to Draco again. Like I kind of just, like they knew I had a contract with them and they really wanted me as a driver, I know, but they were just, they were tough to get on, you know, somewhat playing games. And so I just turned up to, I think the first test again was, uh, might have been Barcelona. I turned up to Barcelona with Carlin and was P1, like, legitimately P1 of the whole field. And they were there testing. I remember Johnny Reed from New Zealand was there testing with Draco. So <laughs> then obviously the legal p- proceedings started after they saw that um, because I had a contract with them. Mm. Um, and it was it was leading up. So we did all the testing with Carl and, and I was oh, yeah very quick all the way through. I had a great engineer, Daniela Rossi, still around. Um, and I had Draco, you know, nipping at my heels with legal proceedings, and you know, uh, I can't remember um, what they had sent me. But overwhelming, overwhelming for a young bloke, mate. It was just like uh, mm. another, you know, twenty thousand pounds to get there. I just do not have the money to pay this to get out of it. But I've got this great deal with Carlin that Mark Webber's backed, and um, you know, it's. <laughs> So we went to the first race and Trev Carlin, um, I think it was Trev Carlin and his, there's another guy, what's his name? Steve, who worked there. They helped me on the case. Um, and, and Nikki Pastorelli, who was managed by Draco, was testing for Midland F1. And uh, Trevor Carlin was running Midland F1. So he did a deal with Draco. He said, look, drop case and we got out of it for like two thousand bucks for the seat or something and we'll give nikki pastorelli some more straight line testing and uh so that's how that deal got resolved um yeah it was stressful time that was great that was really great i still didn't have the budget to finish the season though uh, with Carl, but that all started and we were really quick. And as you, as you and Robert Kubica going toe to toe, weren't you? Yes, it was. It was myself and Robert Kubica, and I got, it was coming. Like, I remember Robert saying to me, Oh, are you coming? Because I kept edging closer to him in the championship. And then we had the disastrous wet weekends, you could say. One was at Oschersleben in Germany, and it was the first wet race. Um, and Basically, apparently the year before, to get the wet tires to work, you had to pump them up, like massive pressure, which is kind of counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Like anything that I've done the wet now, it's just yes. you just don't do that. But that's what they did. Mm. And that's what we were doing. Um, and, you know, I crashed and I think I was like leading at Osher Slaven or, you know, right there. 
Um, and it qual- I can't remember, it may have qualified on pole, but crashed out in the wet, went wet, and we put those wets on. Um, uh, one race, the wheel gun got stuck and it just ruined the, I think we had to stop. We couldn't get the wheel nut off uh, and the pit stop. Mm. Um, then the next weekend at Donington was fully wet, uh, all the way through practice qualifying. Um, and we just like, what's going on? Like there's guys up the front that, you know, we usually beat them. It's like a 30 car field and we were way back. Like normally we're running top five every time. Mm. Um, and Andy Zuber, who was my teammate, they just, you know, I think I can't remember if Trev was there, but they said, just let the bloody tires down. Cause I remember asking my engineer, are you sure that we should be running, you know, what I think it was like 30 PSI on these bloody tires. Oof. Are you sure? Yeah. And he's like, yes, that's how you had to run. I mean, he even called Adrian Burgess who had been running. He called Adrian Burgess who was at spa, uh, working for Jordan F1, I believe. And said, what about these wet, you know. You double sh- check. Yeah, and, and Adrian, I think, had been running um, those cars, you know, a couple of years before. So he's like, yeah, that's what you got to run. So they let Andy's tires, like, you know, chunk out and immediately, boom, way quicker. I'm like, ah. So, yeah, it was too late then, kind of qualified way back. But, but uh, we found what the problem was. And that really, at that point, I had been getting calls from Derek Walker to come to the States, come and test an Indy mm. car, the champ car. Yeah. yeah. So, um, not having the money to continue and then really getting those two weekends, just ruling the championship and not having a chance to win. I was like, why, you know, I, I, I can go test the champ car, which I mm-hmm. did. And it was just an amazing feeling that horsepower and everything yeah. in those champ cars and to think that I would get paid for that versus having to pay, you know, you know, it's pretty clear what I needed to do. So, you know, I had to call Trev and say, sorry, I don't have the money. And he wasn't all that happy about that. Um, to have to go try find another driver to fill that seat. But that was just the situation it was. Um, and at that point I started pursuing the, uh, the team Australia, um, although they were very keen to get an Australian driver in there that could do well for them. And, gave me a test and I did really well. Um, and then they said, well, we can, you can race at the, the, uh, first, the Australian indie race on the Gold Coast. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, and I really, at that point I'd only had that test at Portland. There was quite a bit of time in between. I was kind of like uh, saying to Derek Walker, said like, you know, I'm, I have no experience in these cars. You're going to put me straight in a race. You know, can, can we do a test somewhere and just, they really didn't have the car together and they couldn't. So I just turned up to that and kind of hope, you know, did my absolute best to, you know, make it a good weekend, which it really was. I think mm. got a real taste of it. And then the next, and then actually it was the last two races to do Mexico City as well. Uh, and did really well in that race. Um, and practice and so on was quite fast. And um, I think I'd already signed the contract with those guys at that point. To do a, it was a three-year contract. I'm pretty sure it was a three-year contract. I already signed with Team Australia at that point, so I think I felt pretty comfortable um, and happy to be there because I was going to be paid to drive a bloody champ car, which is just mm. amazing. Amazing, yeah. <laughs> amazing. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of the start of that. At, at the same time, I was uh, same time racing A1GP. Those guys, that was all starting and there's a heap of money going to it and it was 
as a driver, you're getting paid 20 grand a, a race, race or yeah. to, to win, or I think it's 200 grand to win, and you got 10% of it. Um, I think I finished second to PK, qualified right at the front of that. Uh, Alan Jones was there and a bunch of other guys. And um, there was, what do we have? Uh, Christian Jones was there at that first weekend at Brands Hatch. Like this was all going on while I was had signed for Team Australia um, champ car and there was Team Australia A1GP. And uh, I, uh, <laughs> so it's kind of, thinking you can make some really good money here. Yeah. So I did that first race, which is, uh, you know, very, like the whole promoter of the series and everything did a great job. Like they put a lot of money into that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, did really well that weekend. And there was a lot of drivers lining up. I remember Will Davison uh, was lining up. There was a test thrown in there somewhere where we all turned up. Peter Hackett, Will Davison, uh, Christian Jones, um, and myself and kind of vying for that seat. And then the first race came and I think Christian Jones was there and, and then myself, Will couldn't do it for some, I couldn't remember. He may have been heading down the V8 supercar track at that point. Okay. Um, and Christian took some of my practice up. I thought that was ridiculous. I'm like, come on, like, you know, we want to do well here. Give me, yeah. you should be given. Yeah. If you guys are serious, should do that. There's some other Aussie there too that was trying to get the seat. I can't remember who it was, but anyway, I think we. I may have qualified. I qualified right at the front for that. I may have qualified uh, on pole or second. It's top four anyway, uh, and did really well. Finished second, and Alan Jones was really happy about that because it's kind of like at that point. I just remember seeing him and his wife like really stoked that we did well, and it's it's good for him financially and um, and for the team. For Australia. And, yeah. then, and Australia. And then I got a call from uh, Derek Walker saying, um, or Craig Gore, I can't remember, telling me you can't do it. They, they'd seen it on TV. And he said, we don't want you driving for that team Australia. So I had to tell those guys, which were going to the next race, yeah. and they were massively disappointed. So I said, sorry, I can't do it. I've got a contract with... Team Australia is in the mm. Champ Car Team Australia, and I can't race for you guys, uh, which was massively disappointing for me because it was just more miles than a bloody open wheel car, and yeah, you were getting paid. Um, and it was a cool, cool series too. Yeah, and clearly, your career is turning here. It's it's opening the doors to yeah. to America and what would be a really successful chunk of your life. Can we wrap up the yeah. European thing just quickly with a couple of things? With a couple of things. Listeners will be intrigued, firstly, about the Minardi test. Tell us what it was like for a young man to finally drive an F1 car. You're there on the day with your good mate, Will Davis, and the pair of you going toe-to-toe in this car. I mean, that's it wasn't a pointy-end Formula One car in terms of the field, but the fact that you were driving one was, was a massive thing. It absolutely blew me away, um, the horsepower. It just that because I'd only I'd driven um, the F three thousand car, uh, which you know felt pretty quick, and before that just F three, you know, a lot of F three the year, that that during that year, but the Formula One cars you drove out of the pits, yeah, I'm like uh, putting the throttle down a bit. I'm like, you know, I'm not seeing any shift lights. What the hell? And then I just go and suddenly it just keeps revving like to whatever they rev to eighteen grand and. 
it's just nuts, man. Like nuts <laughs> is the feeling like just kicked you in the ass. Like the, the amount of power going from what I had been driving to that just blew me away. Just an amazing feeling. I really was. Keep going. Go, br- breaking aero. Yeah. The aero wasn't like crazy because there was no massively fast corners, but the braking, like how late you could break with confidence, no locking up. Yeah, the middle of the corner wasn't like a heap of grip, but just getting on that throttle with traction control. And I actually thought to myself, like, how could you even drive this thing without traction control? Like, I couldn't imagine like trying to drive it without traction control because it was naturally aspirated 850 horsepower in something that weighed, what would you say, 600 kilos. Crazy. I mean, just insane. Mm. Uh, Yeah, it was just, it was. It was amazing. It really was. The braking, the acceleration though, the acceleration through all those gears. I remember doing that test that I said with Carlin after that, just felt like nothing. <laughs> like after you did that, everything, In slowed, comparison. everything felt so <laughs> slow. Um, but then, you know, the champ car also was equally pretty cool because it it kept just going as well. It was mm. like a, you know, it was turbo, so you didn't have that massive torque. You had a bit of turbo lag, but the top end was as, as you know, it was just like the Minardi. But the Minardi, the torque and the traction control and the speed, the weight, man, that, yeah, it was, it was something else. That's something, you know, I'll never forget about. I remember just talking about a lot of that whole Christmas. It just had blown me away so much. It was really cool. Very great, you know, for a, an aspiring racer. That's a massive um, box to tick. In the midst, yeah. in the midst of all this and, and the the hardship of having no money and trying to stitch a deal together. There are two things I want to, I want to touch on. You mentioned Mark Weber and Anne Neer. We'll get to them in a second, but a couple of journo colleagues of mine, Mark Lindenning and, and uh, Stephen Otley, I, I think have a, a, a fun story and you'll be able to correct me if I have the recollection of it wrong. But at one point, one of them, I think rang you to talk about where you're at and how you were going and, in the space of, of recording this phone interview, you went from saying, I quit, I'm out, I'm done, this is too hard, da 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 and, and by the end of the conversation, you were back, weren't you? I mean, it was that sort of roller coaster ride that you were going through. Yeah, no, I, I used to have some pretty, you know, I'm pretty emotionally was a roller coaster sort of guy. Still am, like, just that sort of person, but... Um, Oh, yeah, I could imagine. I can't remember the exact phone call, but I'm sure that happened. I'm sure that happened. <laughs> I was all, like so desperately wanting to make it, though, like so desperately. And then you'd see these kids that had it so easy. You know, they just had – they'd just rock up in a bloody BMW. And, you know, I was struggling to pay rent, had to borrow a car. And, you know, they were with the best team, Carlin, and uh, did all the testing. It just was – I so desperately wanted not that, but to make it, and uh, uh, yeah, so that's that's some of the emotion would come out in those in, as, uh, when I'd speak to those journos, uh, you know, Mark and uh, Stephen Otley. Yeah, so they were great guys. Like I still, Mark Glendening lives in uh, lives over here. I see him at some IndyCar races. Really, really, really good guy. Cool. Hey, so how did the conversation with Mark and Anne play out? Because, you know, he'd been down the Formula One path. They they knew that landscape very well. I would imagine there was 
probably a, a want, if at all possible, to keep you steered towards Europe, but this opportunity had emerged in America. So how did that all, all play out for you guys? Uh, when I got the offer to go yeah. Champ Car. To, yeah, yeah, well, was, I, yeah, I do actually remember the conversation. Um, I was as myself and Kerry and uh, Mark and Andy were just, um, you know, they, they were totally understanding at that point because it was either find a million dollars to go race GP2 at the time Crazy. or get paid to race Champ Car. Uh, and it was just such an obvious thing. It was just such an obvious answer. You know, at some point, you're going to have to realize that, you know, to, to get to Formula One, you got to have some serious backing and and politically be in the right position mm. because you need a manufacturer or a spot. It, it's just it seemed it seemed like such a struggle. It was a struggle up to that point, but then to go and then again find another million dollars in a series that had just started and you don't even know what team was good or, man. And I saw some disaster. You know, I think about some of the disaster stories you saw of that when, you know, mm. the gearboxes weren't working and they had issues with the brakes. Imagine being the guy who struggled to get that, you know, someone like me and you just wasted it away. Yeah. And didn't take the champ car right. So it's so obvious. And yeah, I, I remember yeah, they were totally like, yes, you should take this. Awesome. And uh, you know, it was a the right move because you're gonna get start paying off your debts and uh, go, go forward. You know, yes. That's the end of part one of my podcast with Indy 500 winner Will Power. If you're driving and you've got time now, hit the gas on part two. It's in the Rusty's Garage Library, ready to be fired up whenever you are. The discussion around a massive crash at Las Vegas in 2011 is captivating, I promise you. Plus, breaking through after going so close to winning the IndyCar title. And finally getting to drink that winner's milk at Indianapolis, the first Aussie in the race's 100-year history to do it. And he puts you in the driver's seat to understand why going round in circles is way harder than most in the general public realise. Listener.